0: Hi, and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call, and we are all just reliving the summer of 69 here, aren't we? Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and the Twitter, and the Instagram, and of course the Facebook page, which you can find over at facebook.com slash Pod. I have not talked about Podcast Republic in a while, and that's a shame because it is my favorite podcast catcher. In fact, I was using it before I even had a podcast, so it it made it extra special to discover that how good it is is a featured podcast on the app. It has a lot of cool features that are constantly leaving the other apps to play catch up. One of my favorite features is when I'm listening in the car and I have to pause to go into the store or whatever, and then I get back in the car and I start listening again. It's actually backed up a few seconds so I can get back into the thread of what I'm listening to. You can find Podcast Republic for free in the Google Play Store, or you can click the link on the HowGoodItIs.com webpage. Well, as it happens, I have another trivia question related to the moon landing, so I'm going to use it here, even though it's not really music-related, I confess. But here it is. I found this interesting. What baseball player is notable for having hit his first career home run On the same day as the moon landing. I'm sure there might have been a couple, but for this one player in particular, it's especially notable. And as usual, I will have that player's name and the reason why it's worth noting at the end of the program. Well, there is no doubt that the 1968 Broadway rock musical Hair broke a lot of barriers and for a lot of reasons. Some have called it the first rock opera, but that would be incorrect from a terminology standpoint because an opera has all of its dialogue sung whereas Hair is a play where some parts of the music happen to be sung. Hair is, however, definitely the first rock musical. Hair was first conceived in 1964, believe it or not, by James Rado and Jerome Ragney. They had performed together in an off-Broadway show that flopped, and later that year they began writing together on the project that ultimately became Hair. At that time, they knew a bunch of people their age who were dropping out and dodging the draft, and they'd seen articles about kids being kicked out of school because of the length of their hair. Now, that's kind of a tough thing to wrap your head around these days, but in the early 1960s, when the Beatles first came to America, it was a big deal because they were considered to have very long hair. And in fact, I remember hearing an audio clip of a DJ marveling about a new band called the Rolling Stones who have hair even longer than the Beatles. It was kind of a weird thing for people to argue about, but there you go. At any rate, Rado and Ragney were spending time with this counterculture, and they felt it was important to document it somehow. So they brought drafts of their show to producer Eric Blau, who, in turn, hooked them up with composer Galt McDermott. Now, McDermott wasn't much of a rock and roll guy, but he was interested in the project, so he took their words and he set them to music. The show first opened uh, off-Broadway in uh, October of 1967 at the Public Theater, which was in the East Village of New York City. The rehearsals, by all accounts, were a bit of a mess, and while the show, when it opened, didn't get great reviews in the press, it was popular with the audiences. After its run at the public theater, it moved to a discotheque called The Cheetah, like the animal, where it ran for another six weeks or so, and after that run, the show went through a big overhaul, including the addition of over a dozen new songs. The other big change was that the plot, which was already kind of loose, was made even looser and at the same time more realistic. So that spontaneity led to some changes that got locked into the script. This is also the point where nudity was first written into the storyline. Because of that, and the overall themes of the show, it took a little convincing to get someone to give the show a Broadway run, but finally it did open at the Biltmore Theatre on April 29, 1968. The show ultimately ran for four years and over 1,700 performances, closing in July of 1972, but... During that four years, there were also regional productions going on, too. At one point, there were nine simultaneous productions going on in major cities across the United States, plus the touring companies. In short, the show was a national and then international phenomenon for its time. Now, oddly enough, the music received uh, mixed reviews from the music industry. Leonard Bernstein is said to have walked out of the production. Uh, John Forgerty was quoted as saying he couldn't get behind it at all. And High Fidelity magazine's uh, Gene Lees said he didn't know any musician who thinks it's good, even quoting John Lennon as saying it was dull. That said, the show did spawn several hit records, and that's what we're looking at today. So I'm going to take these in show order, but oddly enough, the first song is also the last song. Act One opens with a character named Claude uh, sitting at the center of the stage while the rest of the tribe mingles with the audience. Two of the tribe members cut off a lock of Claude's hair and, as the rest of the cast converges on the stage, they celebrate themselves as children of the Age of Aquarius. Now at the end of the play, oh oh yeah, spoiler alert for a 50-year-old show, Claude has transformed into an invisible spirit and the tribe sings the song The Flesh Failures, which leads directly into Let the Sunshine In. So right after that, the play ends and during the uh, curtain call, the tribe reprises Let the Sun Shine In and they bring audience members on the stage to dance with them. Well, these three songs got stitched together into a medley for the Fifth Dimension. As the story goes, Fifth Dimension singer Billy Davis Jr. left his wallet in a New York City taxi cab. The man who found the wallet was involved with the show and invited the group to come see it. producer bones Howe says that shortly after the group had seen the show he got a call in which they were all talking over one another saying they had to cut the song aquarius now Howe was skeptical because the song is so short but after seeing the show well he got the idea to put the medley together by connecting the beginning of the show with its ending Howe said that even though the songs are in two different keys and tempos he resolved to quote jam them together like two trains unquote Part of how he did that was by grabbing just a few bars from the Flesh Failures to use as a lead-in to Let the Sunshine In, and that's why all three titles appear on the record label, even though you only hear lyrics for two of them. The instrumental track for Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In, was laid down separately by the Wrecking Crew, with Hal Blaine on drums, uh, Joe Osborne on bass, Larry Nectel on keyboards, and Tommy Tedesco, along with Dennis Pudimir on guitars. The vocals were laid down in Las Vegas, where the Fifth Dimension was performing at the time, using only two microphones for the five singers. And by the way, Billy Davis' solo during the last third of the record was entirely improvised. This is the
1: start. This is the dawn.
0: The record was released in March of 1969 and it spent six weeks at the top of the Billboard Hot 100 during April and May of that year. It was also a number one record in Canada and it was top five in Switzerland, West Germany and South Africa. And it was a top 20 record in Austria, Ireland, the Netherlands and the UK. And Billboard has it at number 73 of their all-time Hot 100. The song has been covered many times but has never matched the success of the 5th Dimensions version. So about midway through the show, two tourists approach the tribe and they ask them why they have such long hair. As a response, Claude and his friend Berger explain its significance in the song Hair. Now the Broadway version of the song has a bunch of religious references in it, where they compare their hair with Jesus, and there are parts where the tribe sings hallelujah. They'll
1: be Gaga and when they see me in my toga. My toga made of blonde, brilliant, team biblical hair. My hair like Jesus wore it. Hallelujah.
0: Well, the Cow got a hold of it and they recorded it, changing some words and omitting most of the religious references, which really means they cut those last two verses you just heard, and they changed the line long as God can grow it, which appears in the chorus, to long as I can grow it. Now, near as I can tell, the Cow would not have recorded it, except they needed a song for their appearance on a TV special called The Wonderful World of Pizzazz," which was meant to be a comedic comment on hippies and their styling. The producer of the show was Carl Reiner, and he sent the band a copy of the cast soundtrack album and ask them to perform that song specifically. Give me
1: a head with hair, long, beautiful hair, shining, gleaming, streaming, flaxes, waxes. Give me down to there, hair, shoulder length.
0: Billy uh, Cal arranged the song so that each member of the group got to contribute something vocally, thus allowing each of them to get some camera time. It was a pretty shrewd move on their part, really. Now, because the show was a comedy variety show, the band put on these long, wild wigs to perform the song on the show. And there are clips of their appearance on the show. The best quality one has a huge watermark on it, but it's still so much better than any other you'll find that you probably won't care. I'll put a link up on the website for you. Look carefully and you will notice a couple of things. First, the set is really tiny, but creative camera angles make it look bigger. And second, you can actually spot a couple of times where the singers are cueing each other on different moves, including one point where they're surreptitiously holding hands because Susan can't see where she's going. The song was recorded in early 1969 and the show aired on March 18th that same year. So the song was recorded in early 1969, and the show aired on March 18th, that same year. Now the label, MGM Records, wasn't interested in releasing a single, but Bill had an acetate of the song cut, and he leaked it to WLS Radio in Chicago, where it got lots of attention, and the label finally changed their mind, releasing the single just a couple of days before the show aired, and added it to the album The Cow Sills in Concert. The song went to number two on the Billboard Hot 100s and was top 20 in a few other countries, but go figure, the song that kept it out of the number one position, Aquarius, Let the Sun Shine In. Meanwhile, back in the show, there is a scene where a girl named Sheila gives Berger a shirt, and while he's goofing around with it, he tears it in two. Sheila begins to sing about how Berger appears to care more about the crowd than about her. ¶¶ the band Three Dog Night picked it up and released it the first week of August 1969 with Chuck Negron on lead vocals. It also wound up on their album, Suitable for Framing. Easy to Be Hard was a number four record for Three Dog Night, and it was a number two record in Canada. Special. But wait, there's still one more hit song that came from Hair. We take you now to Act 2, and we're in fact close to the end of the show. Claude has just come down from a hallucinogenic trip, and he declares that what he wants to be is invisible. Sheila and the rest of the tribe sing this next song, while Claude is left alone to disappear as far as the tribe is concerned. And as with Easy To Be Hard, a female lead becomes a male as Oliver recorded the song Good Morning Starshine for radio and record consumption. It was easy to transpose the song for his voice since he had that high tenor going on. And while it was a number three hit in the U.S. and top ten in several countries, including the U.K., Oliver the artist turned out to be little more than a flash in the pan. He had this hit in July of 1969... And then the theme to the film, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, went to number two just a few months later. And that was pretty much all for Oliver. So there you have it, four, well technically five, songs from a single Broadway show that dominated the pop charts in the spring and summer of 1969. I'm happy to be corrected, but I don't think there's another Broadway musical that's done anything close to that. Am I wrong? By all means, let me know, but I bet I'm not. Now it's time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you to identify the baseball player whose first career home run took place on July 20th, 1969, the same day that Apollo landed on the moon. Well, friends, that player was Gaylord Perry, who pitched for several different teams over his 22-year baseball career. Perry was mostly known for throwing spitballs, which is against the rules, but he wasn't caught and punished for it until 1982, the year before he retired. At any rate, from 1962 until 1971, Perry pitched for the San Francisco Giants, and like most pitchers, he wasn't an especially good hitter. Now, there are minor variations on the story, but the basic thrust is that in 1963, his manager, Alvin Dark, joked, they'll put a man on the moon before he hits a home run. And that's exactly what happened. Only an hour after Apollo 11 landed on the moon, Perry hit his first career home run. And that's a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or You can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at HowGoodItIsPod. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at Facebook.com slash HowGoodItIsPod. Or you can check out the show's website, HowGoodItIs.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks as ever to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next week, we're going to take a look at Charlie Manson and his relationship with both the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time.